This is the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Hello, friends, and welcome to a Wednesday Wisdom episode of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. And if you're wondering why the J, the answer is I am not a bagpipe player. And if that joke doesn't make any sense, I encourage you to check out episode zero where I explain that joke as well as the purpose of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast. But as to today's episode, our Wednesday Wisdom episodes are this. I am sharing the audio of my sermons from the church I pastor, Evident Grace Fellowship in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as well as sermons from churches I have pastored prior, as well as sermons that I've preached at other places. And I'm sharing them with you for this reason. My sermons are usually not too long. They're between 30 and 40 minutes long. And by sharing them with you, it gives you a chance for some spiritual encouragement midweek. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging and encouraging, like I said. And if it is, would you please send me a note at uh, gordon at jgordonnuckin.com or maybe even share this sermon online, Facebook, or on your Instagram story. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to the sermon. From Romans 10, 5-13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, Christianity is an ancient and tested faith. Even if we go back all the way to the beginning of the scriptures, you'll see over and over again that cultures and peoples and ideologies have tested our faith, and over and over again, our faith has been proven faithful. The people in the Old Testament, in their wanderings, and even in the land, were constantly assailed. The Babylonians wanted to enslave them. The Chaldeans wanted to kill them. All because their faith and their culture saw the presence of one true God as a challenge to who they were. And our faith was tested and found true. If you look at the book of Job, which many consider to be uh, the oldest book in all of the Bible, you'll even see Job and his friends. And that in and of itself is a back and forth of ideas where Job is being asked and challenged over and over again, is your God faithful? Does he do these things because of what you've done, because who he is? And it's a faithful back and forth. But as you read the book of Job, you'll see that our faith is ancient and tested and been found faithful. The book of Psalms that we just looked at, a wonderful pictures of worship that guide us and show how to walk our hearts before God. But even there, you'll see the believer going, God, where are you? Why haven't you come to my defense? Where are you in my time of trouble? And in the book of Psalms, you'll see that our faith is ancient and tested and faithful. 
between the last verses of Malachi and the first verses of Matthew, God was silent from his people for 400 years. And the culture around the people of God mocked them and decried them and says, where's your God? Who is this God that meets with you face to face? Where is he? He seems silent. He seems to have abandoned you. But yet, as Christ arrived and broke back into this world, every critic would have to recognize Jesus who shook the world to his core. And our faith was ancient and tested and faithful. Christ not only lived obediently and died faithfully and rose gloriously, he would enter into the marketplace of ideas and challenge all the religious leaders of the day and say, you've made something of this ancient and tested faith. You've made something out of it that God never attended. He, he, he didn't intend a faith that would be so outward that it would lack anything of depth inwardly. A faithfulness that's ancient and tested is never one that's intended to just impress individually, but intended to glorify God corporately. When we look at the book of Acts, and, and, the, and, and the church breaks into the world and shakes all of the world to its core, you would see Paul go into Mars Hill, into the gathering of all the philosophers and religions of the day, and he would tell the world, your gods are empty and useless and have abandoned you. You make gods without names because you're fearful you've missed one. And our faith that is ancient and tested was proved faithful. We can skip into church history. You can find Nero, who was so intimidated by a Jesus Christ whose faith could live on after he died, who would not only persecute Christians by killing them, would be willing to set fire to his own kingdom to blame Christianity for that fire, to create conspiracies and thoughts about them that were untrue. But yet, our faith was ancient and tested and faithful. In the 7th century, in the battle between Islam and Christianity, where millions of mistakes were made, if a Christian couldn't pay his taxes, they would forfeit their children. That would seem to cause many faithful believers to flee, but it didn't. It actually emboldened believers to stand up and be faithful. And you can repeat these stories throughout the Dark Ages and the Enlightenment and the Protestant Reformation. And we can roll into the present day where 100,000 Christians die annually for their faith. You would, see, you would think this is when this ancient and tested faith would dissolve and diminish, but it's not true. Presently in our circumstances now, we live in a culture that wants to dismiss Christianity as out of date, homophobic, misogynistic. There's a culture of teenagers and 20-year-olds that think that their enlightenment of, of the day is enough to dismiss our ancient and tested faith, but yet Christianity will prove itself true yet again. And at the essence of it today, the question that tests our faith is not whether or not we'll rise above the culture. Here's the question. It really is. The question is, when our faith is attacked, is a disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Whenever people want to attack our faith, 
as being out of touch or being any sort of phobia you want to list, what happens is someone will point out some random verse in the Old Testament and then tell you that it's not faithfully represented in the New Testament and you will be accused of cherry-picking whatever verse you like for whatever conviction you have. And so I will remind you again that our faith is ancient and has been tested and is faithful. So what we need to do as a people is understand that deep connection between the old and the new, that it's not an old versus the new, but it's an old becoming the new, so that when you are asked about what you truly believe, or when you stand up for what you really believe, you understand how the two of them connect and ultimately to Christ in this ancient and tested faith. That in and of itself is probably too large of a topic for a 38-minute sermon. And the question I'm going to ask is going to be one of those immensely theological questions, but I think it'll prove itself practical for your faith. And it comes to this. People will say, listen, in the Old Testament, God had a completely different personality, and if you wanted to be saved and have a relationship with him, it sure looked like that was something very different than what we have now. And truly, there are differences. Thankfully, none of you had to walk through a gate or go through a cleansing process. None of you had to gather up your farm animals to make sure you could come and worship today, thankfully. None of you are waiting for one person to come outside behind this curtain to tell you that you have your sins forgiven by God. Truly, there are immense differences between the two. But it's not old versus new. It's the old becoming the new. So whereas you don't have to make yourself clean, Christ lived obediently and you're declared clean. And whereas you don't have to go offer your farm animals to come and sacrifice, Christ himself was the sacrifice. And whereas I don't have to come out here and tell you you're forgiven, the Holy Spirit bears witness in your heart to tell you that you were forgiven. But we still have to understand, but what about those folks? What about those folks who had to go through that entire process? Did they truly have a relationship with God in the same way that you have a relationship with God? Answering that question proves once again that our faith that's ancient and tested is faithful. And we need to understand that to draw draw closer to God and to engage our culture. So here's our big picture question today. Did you get saved differently in the Old Testament? Did you? So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do an Old Testament, New Testament comparison. Then we're going to answer the question. The answer is, nope, you didn't get saved differently in the Old Testament than you did in the New Testament. And third, what we're going to do is we're going to see that all who call in the name of the Lord are saved. Okay? That's a lot to tackle here, but we're going to do it. And I invite you all to coffee this week as we wrestle with it. Let me give you some context. Some of us haven't been here. Some of us were sick last week. Some of us are worshiping with us the first time. Here's what's been going on. Uh, last week in the book of Romans, uh, we were told that Christ is the end of you trying to be righteous. The word righteous means what? Come on, guys, you got it, right? Right in the eyes of God. Man, by the end of Romans, it's going to be like a chorus. I can't wait. Whatever God says is right, that's righteous. And last week, we read that Christ is the end of you trying to be righteous. You can't do it. Our faith is ancient and tested and faithful. We are ancient and tested and unfaithful. Thankfully, Christ ends your struggle for righteousness. He gifts it to you. You can't surpass his righteousness. When, uh, when our kids were younger, we had a ticket system. 
You did something, you bought one of those giant spools of like tickets you buy for a raffle. If you did something good, we gave you a ticket. After enough tickets, you could cash it in and buy something. Every now and then, our kids pull out a ticket from like eight years ago, and I'm like, that's not allowed when you want to buy something. But anyway, the commerce is what it is, and we give in. So we gave them a ticket. Was that ticket worth a dollar? No. Would you ever want to count on that at a grocery store? No. Even if it's valued in my household. So in the same way, you might do something good. I want you to do good deeds, but you're never going to use them to stand before a holy God. Why would you? When you have all the righteousness of Christ, which one would you like to rest upon? Not the tickets we earn for doing small things, but the goodness of Jesus Christ. Last week was about getting you to exhale and breathe and trust. That's where we are in the book of Romans. Verse 10, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So, so Moses did this. He said, hey guys, here's God's law. And God's law is always an expression of his character. If God said, do this, then it showed you what God was like. If it said, don't do it, it showed you what God was like. And it was intended that you would live by that law. You would live by that law. Now, at never any point in time did you earn a, a big, big old measure of righteousness before God. You just couldn't because of your sin. But it did show you what righteous living looked like. Now, we know uh, from what Christ says that people got that system all mixed up. And they thought, if I'm good, and if I'm good, and I'm good, God's very impressed with me. Glad I'm not like those people. Aren't you impressed with me, God? That's never what was intended. Instead, it was to show you how bad of a sin you were, how much you needed mercy, and it was a pattern of living that kept the world from going into chaos. So Moses gave a law and said, you should live by it. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, this is where these verses get a little murky. If you are counting on Jesus' righteousness by faith, that's what we're counting on. That's what that whole introduction was about, right? If that's what we're counting on, you don't have to ascend into heaven. You don't have to descend into the abyss. You don't have to get Christ to come down, nor do you have to get Christ to come up. Okay, first of all, that's a quote of Luke 18 and Deuteronomy 30 for my note takers. Deuteronomy 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Deuteronomy 30. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will send to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? Here's what's going on. Okay? You no longer have to try yourself to ascend to heaven. Don't. You're not going to be able to do it. You personally are never going to be good enough and good enough to ascend into heaven. We live in a culture that says, really hoping when this whole thing washes down the drain, the good outweighs the bad, I'll be good. It's a horrible philosophy. It's a horrible philosophy. You don't have to try to ascend into heaven. Also, you don't have to try to say like, Christ help me, Christ help me, because he's already helped you. You're not asking Christ to come back. He doesn't have to come back. He's done it. Your cry out to help is like, I just need mercy. You don't have to descend into hell anymore. You don't have to be punished for your sins anymore. 
You don't have to descend into the abyss. And Christ is not there either. He rose again on the third day. And so what these verses are asking you to do is to ask you a question about yourself and a question about Jesus. And these verses are quotes in the Old Testament, so this is showing us that's what was going on for them, this is what's going on for you. You don't have to earn your way into heaven, and you're not going to have to die for your sins when you have faith in Jesus Christ. And Christ has done it all. That was the promise of the Old Testament, that a Savior would do that for them. And it's the promise of the New Testament that the Savior did it for you already. The faith that you hold is the same faith that was held in the Old Testament. So you don't have to work to ascend into heaven, and you are not going to have to die for your sins, because Christ worked to grant you all of heaven, and he died to pay for your sins. These are Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 30. The very same faith we proclaim is the same faith that was proclaimed in the Old Testament. So having said that, did you get saved differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament? And the answer is, nope. Look at verse 5, excuse me, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is one of the most succinct and clear pictures of how we have a relationship with God in all the Bible. If you're struggling on how to share your faith, you throw these two verses in your pocket, and you're going to be a long ways down the road. This is one of the ones that just makes it clear. Let's break it down first. First of all, it doesn't come by any way but the Word. We trust the Word to understand how to be saved. The folks in the Old Testament trusted the law of God to be faithful. We trust the testimony of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Word is near you. And this is what the Word says. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess. That is personal and public. Personal and public. When you say Jesus Christ is Lord, you're saying, I am completely under the rule of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. If he says do it, I do it. If he says don't do it, I don't do it. It's no longer I who are Lord of my life. Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. I say that in my heart and I say it publicly. Say it publicly. And you believe it in your heart that Christ is raised from the dead and you'll be saved. What this is asking for is a consistency between what you believe and what you do. It's the and. It's a consistency between what you believe and what you do. The scriptures are clear. If you say you believe it, but you don't see the outward expression of it, then you don't believe it. You're not saved by what you do, but you do because you're saved. Now, this is called framing. Let me give you an analogy of this real quick. Uh, This is called framing. Uh, Someone might come to me and they'll say, Pastor, while I am praying, is it okay if I do drugs? I'd be like, it's probably not okay. But if someone came to me and said, hey, while I'm doing drugs, do you think I should pray? And I'd be like, yes, 
Yes, you should. All I had to do is move a couple of words around. Let's try that again. Pastor, while I'm praying, you think I should be doing drugs? No, 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 no. This is, don't mix drugs in the quiet time. It's never a good cocktail. Pastor, I am doing drugs. Should I pray? Yes, you should. So let me apply it to this passage here. Okay? Do I have to obey to be saved? Nope. Do I have to be saved to obey? Yes. Let's try it again. Do I have to obey to be saved? No, you don't. You're not going to get saved because of what you do. Do I have to be saved to obey? Yes. You will not be able to obey unless God has changed your heart. They go hand in hand. What these verses is asking for is a consistency by what you profess and believe. The only thing you have is faith before God in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's what we say it every single week when we take the Lord's Supper. That's the only hope you have. That's the only hope that the folks had in the Old Testament. It's the only hope that Job had and that Moses had and David had. It's the only hope that anybody who's ever professed faith is. All I've got is what Jesus has done. That's all I believe. But if you believe, you will be a transformed person. You will be. You do not have any other choice. Because with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That is our ancient and tested faith. When people begin to struggle with the Old Testament and New Testament, and Christianity in light of the 2020 culture, this is what we have. This is the basis of all change. This is what we get geared up about. This is where we begin to get prepared to interact with the world. The proclamation of a faith that tells you you can rest, but you will be transformed. You can rest, but you will be transformed. All who call on God will be saved. First of all, that's a quote. So that means it's true from Scripture. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. So if someone professes faith and calls on God, they will be saved. So in our categorization of the people we like and we don't like, and the sins that we think are really bad and the sins that we think are acceptable, if folks cry, excuse me, cry out to God, they will be saved. They'll be transformed. They'll be saved. Look at verse 11. The scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I want to remind you that when we started with Romans 1 a year and a half ago, that was the emphasis of Romans chapter 1. The end of shame. If you cry out for faith in Jesus Christ, you will not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame. The sins that you struggle with in remembrance of what you've done, the sins that you continue to base shame on, that you have struggled with to let go, I want you to remind you that before God, you will not be put to shame. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God does not intend to shame you. You want to know why? Because Christ was shamed on your behalf. Christ experienced abandonment, nakedness, abuse. All on your behalf so that you will experience none of that. All shame is gone for every single believer in Jesus Christ. And that is the message our culture does not know what to do with. 
Our, our culture does not know what to do with shame. In fact, our culture will say, go do all the things that cause shame and then tell yourself not to be shamed. That message dies because it's impractical and it won't work. Our culture will say, go do all that shameful stuff. You'll be fine. While the heart is eaten up with acid. Whereas God says, no, 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 no. I'll forgive you, take away your shame, and transform you. You remember the questions I asked you for your time of repentance? Let's think through them again real quick. It's called a prayer of examine. How do you feel when you come before God today? When you answer that question, how do you feel today? Did you feel welcomed? Did you feel distant? This verse would say that you are beholding the one who beholds you. And he smiles. How do you consider God today? Do you consider him far off? Or do you consider him near? These verses would say, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, he is near. He is never far off. My third question I asked you was, where do you feel far away from God? Is it your thought life? Is it in your speech? Is it in your private moments? Where is that? Those are your moments and your opportunities for confession. And then that fourth question was a hopeful one. Where do you feel close to God? We're going forward, verse 12 says this. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The most offensive statement that can be written in all of cultural first century Judaism. You couldn't be more offensive than this. There is no distinction in the eyes of God between a Jew and a Greek. This was the racial battle of the first century where God said, it doesn't matter whether you seem to appear godly or whether you seem to be appearing just awful pagan. God doesn't see those distinctions. Because the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now what that should mean for us, that should be that hopeful mission that transforms the way we see the world. That hopeful mission. That no matter what race, gender, sexual orientation, political party, football affiliation, like it doesn't matter. Every one of them can be saved by God. None of them are really far off, but only a tiny far off from God. There's not a distinction. There is either child of God or those who are far off. But God doesn't look at the categories and go, too far from me, really close to me. God looks at things as child of God, far off. What this should do for us missionally is that when we are in our days and we are in our workplaces and we are at our gyms and our kids' ball games, wherever we are, we should look at every single person and say, they are not too far from the hand of God. We should look at every single person and say, God can save that person. Ultimately, because then we take this verse and make it personal and go, because I was saved. It should make our mission fervent. It should make our mission hopeful. 
And as we look at our ancient and tested faith over the last 6,000 years, we see these verses borne out. We see God saving the people of God. We see God saving the most scandalous. We see God saving pagan kings. We see God saving terrorists. We see God saving people of every sexual manner of sin or deviancy. Every political party. No one is beyond God's reach if he chooses to save them. So should our approach be. I really encourage you as we approach uh, our EG groups and as they take a break from Mark very soon and they pursue the study of sharing the gospel to remind these things in your hearts that this should be the motivation for our mission. That no one is too far from God. Let me uh, begin to wrap this sermon up, and then I have a little bit more to share with us. If you're new with us, what I do in each sermon is I'll, I'll re-ask our big-picture question, and then I want to give you a truth, an application, and an action. Our truth is a uh, restating of a truth, an application is how we might live in light of this, and an action is a to-do. So let's do that. First of all, our big-picture question was, did you get saved differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament? And then we looked at an Old Testament-New Testament comparison. We answered the question, nope. It was by faith in the Old Testament, just like it is in the New Testament. And then we reminded ourselves that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's uh, give us a few things here to apply. I'll send this out in the Sunday recap. Here's our truth. Throughout history, God has faithfully rescued sinful men and women when they cry out to help for Him. What has saved them is His working in our faith throughout history. Abraham, Genesis 12, God says, I'm going to be your God. And Abraham believed, and it was counted as what? Righteous. Right in God's eyes. Galatians will tell you that your faith is of the same faith as Abraham. Application. Live this week. Live knowing that your faith is an ancient yet personal salvation from God who loves you dearly. When you are tempted to dismiss a word from God, or dismiss the work of God in our day, remind yourself that this is a wonderful, ancient, and tested faith. God has loved you, and it's personal, and you are dearly held in His eyes. Action. I want you to literally call in the name of the Lord this week in trouble. I mean, what do we see? He said, all those who call in the name of the Lord will not be what? will not be put to shame. Like, I don't know how much literally calling on the name of the Lord we do. Like, privately, publicly, in your car, wherever you got to do it. Like, you need to say, God, I need you. God, I do not feel close to you. God, have you abandoned me? God, enable me. Like, call on his name. You won't be put to shame by your question or your need. You need to be reminded, friends, that Christ prays on your behalf. That he intercedes on your behalf, joyfully speaks about you. There's a theologian named Robert Murray McShane. Some of you smile by the mentioning of his name. He said this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference because he prays for me. 
He's like, if I just, if I could for a moment hear Christ praying for me, I wouldn't fear anything. But it doesn't matter whether I can hear it or not, because he's praying for me. Friends, we have a wonderful and ancient faith. You are called back to trusting a God, even if you struggle or if you're in doubt. But if you're struggling and in doubt, I remind you, Christ prays for you. And if you wonder how in the world is Christianity going to have a foothold in this culture, I remind you that our faith is ancient, and it's been tested, and it's faithful. It's endured worse than this, and it will endure worse than this going forward. But you have a faith that you can proclaim without shame in this culture because you experience no shame before your Heavenly Father. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you. I thank you that the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is hard for us to understand. It calls us. It calls us to study you. Father, I pray for our children right now that they would grow in the depths and knowledge of the Scriptures. That they would bring to you their questions and their struggles. I pray for our adults in here that they would be honest, that they would cry out in the name of the Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, that we will not be put to shame. Thank you for this wonderful, ancient, and faithful, and tested faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Our last song is wonderfully...